Ladies and gentlemen, for your moral guidance and improvement, such stories we have for you today, such feats of courage, ordinary man at his most extraordinary, runaway horses, burning houses, exploding trains. Like most people, I stumbled over the memorial by accident. I was wandering through London on the way to work. I turned right at St Paul's Cathedral and just past Angel Street saw something I'd missed the hundred times I walked this way before. Up a few steps, a tiny patch of green with an odd name, Postman's Park. There were lime trees and tidy flower beds, orange-coloured fish swimming in a mossy pond, an old church with Victorian stained glass. And then I noticed it, a long wooden bench running along a wall, sheltered by a sloping roof but open to the park, a cloister. Inside, there were rows of ornate ceramic tiles, each one lovingly dedicated to an individual. Samuel Laudel, bargeman. Joseph William Onslow, lighterman. Solomon Gallerman. Solomon Gallerman, aged 11, died of injuries after saving his little brother from being run over. Mother, I saved him, but I could not save myself. September the 6th, 1901. I'd found the memorial of heroic self-sacrifice, an unassuming monument in a tucked away park that commemorates the bravery of ordinary men, women and children who died trying to save someone else's life. It was built in 1900, and since then, it's been one of London's secrets. I used to work around the corner of J.P. Morgan, and I was just walking down, and I was just walking around exploring the area, and I just saw this thing. I thought, this is remarkable. Which is your favourite It's one? a train, a guy who pushes the guy out of the way of a train, and he, and he dies. Yeah, see, that's, that's Daniel Pemberton, age 61, foreman. Surprised by a train when ga gauging the line, hurled his mate out of the track, I mean, that's astonishing. You know why that's astonishing? Because imagine you're working something and a train is coming around the corner. Your first instinct is to jump out of the way. But his first instinct was to push his mate out of the way. And that's just something spectacular. Do you think you would do that? No. <laughs> I wouldn't have the instinct. That's purely instinct that's working. You're not thinking about it. I try to bring as many people here as I can because I think it's truly remarkable. Spend a day in the park and you'll see all sorts. Politicians on a tour of city gardens. Cleaners just knocked off after the night shift. Doctors from the nearby hospital on a sandwich break. But sooner or later, if you stay long enough, you'll have the memorial and its ghosts all to yourself. You wouldn't want this to be a major part of the tourist trail. Um, if this became the London Eye, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have its sort of cult value. I mean, I'm not sure I even approve of this documentary. <laughs> popularising it. That's the playwright, Patrick Marber. He was the first person to popularise the monument by writing about it in his play, Closer. You might have seen the movie starring Natalie Portman and Jude Law. There's something beautiful about being in a green place with buildings all around you. It's, it's lovely and you can hear the traffic, but it's not violently loud. And there's something about it as a place that asks for your respect. Do you come and sit here much? 
I, I walk through this park quite a lot, but I'll sort of commune with the memorial about once a year. Find myself here and I'll spend time looking at the plaques. They're little bits of poetry, sort of little haikus of death. And once you read one, you want to find out how everyone else died. We're much fixated on death, we the living. Frederick Alfred Croft, inspector, aged 31, saved a lunatic woman from suicide at Woolwich Arsenal Station, but was himself run over by the train, January 11th, 1878. You don't get more information, and you'd quite like a bit more information. You want to hear their voices in some way. It forces your imagination into action. But because it was so long ago, it sort of, well, it doesn't hurt anymore, but then, then it does, it, it grabs you. And it's very potent. David Selves, age 12, supported his drowning playfellow and sank with him, clasped in his arms, September the 12th, 1886. Supported his, oh, 12 years old. Supported his drowning playfellow and sank with him, clasped in his arms. That's, that kills me. It forces you to celebrate that you are living and to feel this whimper, much more humanising than a load of names or a statue of a great man. It's the narrative, and it draws us in, and it makes us go, oh. But re and it makes you sort of go, oh, life. The man responsible for these odd beautiful plaques was the 19th century artist George Frederick Watts. The son of a piano maker, Watts didn't hold much with the pomp and circumstance of the Victorian era. He turned down a baronetcy, twice. Memorials usually commemorate soldiers or politicians, but Watts wanted to celebrate the acts of courage that history usually overlooks. Yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. In 1887, he wrote to the editor of the Times newspaper, Sir, the history of Her Majesty's reign would gain a luster were the nation to erect a monument, say, here in London, to record the names of these likely to be forgotten heroes. Thirteen years and a lot of his own money later, the memorial of heroic self-sacrifice was unveiled. Watts had been collecting newspaper articles about the heroism of the lower classes for years. Nursemaids, labourers, signalmen. Now he could tell their stories. The material prosperity of a nation is not an abiding possession. The deeds of its people are. First day in London and we decided to use the tube. <laughs> what a performance. We got to where we were supposed to get. Now it's the trouble is getting back. And we struck this place, it's absolutely gorgeous. And I don't think I'll ever forget it. I love Ernest Benning. He was aged 22, he was a compositor. Upset from a boat one dark night off Pim Pimlico Pier. Pimlico. Grasped an oar with one hand, supporting a woman with the other. He sank as she was rescued, August the 25th, 1883. Where are you from in New Zealand? Uh, Christchurch. We've just had two horrific earthquakes, three actually. 190 people died. The heroics of people. 
and the police and that were telling them, don't go in there, and they just says, we are, and they did. And there were all colours of people, creeds of people, all ages of people, shot into the earthquake, <laughs> damaged buildings and pulled people out. All they can think of is that other person. Part of the fascination of the plaques, as with any memorial, is that the brevity of an inscription can't ever capture the fullness of a life. We feel the loss of everything the respectful words don't tell us. What Amelia Kennedy had for breakfast before she died saving her sister for a burning house. What Thomas Simpson might have done with his day off if he hadn't died rescuing people from breaking ice at Highgate Ponds. Whether Elizabeth Boxall, aged 17, who died trying to save a child from a runaway horse, had a sweetheart who wondered where she'd got to when she didn't come home. We fill in the gaps, and in doing so, it's easy to get lost in the romance of the story and forget that these are real people. You can see all of these are from 1880s, 1870s, 1890s, but look up here, ah, 2007. Exactly. 2007. The story of this was that this man called Lee Pitt he was a reprographic operator, which is like printing. He saved a drowning boy from the canal at Thamesmead, which is an area of London. Lee had picked me up from the station because I'd been on a course. And so we were both home early for once. It was, I think, about five o'clock or something. Something had flowered on, in the balcony and I was showing him, you know, because I was so excited about it. And then we saw the kid shouting. So Lee ran downstairs. And at the time, the fencing was just chest level. So you could literally climb over and just jump in. When the call came out, as I was, didn't actually think it was going to be as serious as it was because it weren't unusual or unheard of that kids had gone in swimming over there. I didn't realise where it was, where it was the deep end near the actual lock gate. I saw Lee holding the child and trying to get him to the shallower end. And Lee, Lee used to cycle, he used to go gym. He was really, really healthy. But I mean, that's a lot of weight, isn't it, to hold a kid yeah. up? That's, yeah. yeah, and in water, and you've got nothing to hold on to. And it's too deep to put his feet down. Yeah. I was the first emergency service to show up. Saw Hema, ran over to us to actually find out what's wrong, and then she just pointed down into the water. I'm shouting at the, because the ambulance people are coming down, and the neighbours, apparently, they've help the kids to safety by then, you know, like swim up. There's loads of people around and stuff. And I remember shouting and then saying my partner's in the water and fit and I've turned around and Lee, I can't see Lee anymore. So I'm absolutely screaming by now going he's in the water and I've I can't see him and then the policeman, PC Kenchow, is there and he believes me and then he goes in the water and I remember climbing over the fence and just looked down into the water and the only thing I could think of that I cared about to actually not get wet was my mobile phone. <laughs> to actually get my mobile phone out, pass it to the, my police colleague who says, Jeff, hold this. And I literally just after that, with everything I had on me, this is my body armour, my vest, my utility belt, my whole uniform, including my boots, I jumped into the feet first. I think it was a good... 10 foot drop. Couldn't see anything clear. It was a really, really dirty water, so all like dark green. And I started to go further down. They saw Lee's body. I managed to actually get one arm un under, under his head and, under, and possibly under his armpit. And then actually set to actually get him and drag him over to the wall. 
look around and try to find a ladder or something to hold on to. But all I had was slimy, molded bricks. I was trying to use my actual fingernails to claw onto these slimy, molded bricks whilst holding and trying to actually hold on to Lee. Lee's gone under and he's... And the policeman's gone in the water. Now, this guy's quite short. He was as short as me, this policeman. And he's gone into the water and, and then he's pushed Lee's body up. And I think the firemen are here because there's nothing for them. How can they get into the water to pull Lee's body out and stuff? And they're having to do these ropes and stuff. All the weight I actually had on me and having Lee in my arms, I actually couldn't actually do it. I was shouting up there, says, there's nothing to hold on to, there's nothing to hold on to and all that stuff. I was saying to myself, this could be the last, my last day of my life. I can't get out myself, I'm going to end up joining Lee, drowning myself. Basically after a while I actually decided to actually say to myself, you know what, no, this is, uh, I can't actually hold on to him anymore. And that's what exactly what actually, I think that's exactly what I actually shouted up. Actually, I think I shouted, I can't hold on to him anymore. I can't hold on to him anymore. And... Next thing I actually heard, I've heard Hammer to us, it was shouting at me. It says, can you keep, it says, it says, please keep his head above the water. And I was, I just, I think I remember, I says, sorry, I can't help him anymore. They kept on stopping the ambulance. They kept on stopping it. And I don't know if that's something to do with resuscitating or whatever. And then, just after half six, they told us that they couldn't save him. And it's what it is. How long did it? How long did it take? A couple of hours. But how long was he in the water? I don't know. I really don't know. The time just. Yeah. Did you think about jumping in? What in the water? No. On that day, I I, I have no idea what I was thinking. I don't think I would have done. No. He wouldn't, he, two things, one, helping someone, two, was a child. So he didn't hesitate? No. George Blenko, age 16, when a friend bathing in the Lee cried for help, went to his rescue and was drowned September the 6th, 1880. Alice Ayres, daughter of a bricklayer's labourer, who by intrepid conduct saved three children from a burning house in Borough at the cost of her own young life. April the 24th, 1885. James Hughes, killed by a train at Richmond in the endeavour to save another man. September 24th, 1878. Lee Pitt was going to marry his girlfriend, Emma Shaw, the year he died saving a nine-year-old boy from drowning. I've got you under my skin. He loved fishing and liked to have his photo taken with his catch, thumbs up. He was a singer, and when he signed up for karaoke at a work do, he spent nights practising his Frank Sinatra routine in the lounge. He was loud, loving, I made a good cup of tea. That's right. That's right. That's right. 
make someone decide to run into a burning house or jump into a dangerous canal. Police Constable Ken Chow, the man who tried to save Lee Pitt. I'm a police officer, I'm a public servant. It's my duty to try and care for people and actually save people. Did you have time to think about the fact there might not be a way out? Or did you just jump? I just jumped. I actually, at the time, I wasn't thinking about the exit. I was thinking about grabbing hold of Lee. You and Lee have parallel stories, but with a different ending. Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought about that? No, I haven't, actually. Lee actually went in to save the child, and the child got out, and I tried to go in and save Lee, but I didn't get him out, and I struggled to get out. Can you recognise Lee's bravery? Yeah, I can recognise Lee's bravery, yeah. Because I suppose that's what I see in you. Well, I didn't lose my life for it, though, did I? If I actually continue holding on to Lee, then I would have probably actually ended up remembered similar to him but I actually made the decision to save myself. That was probably selfish of me, but I measured it. It was going to either be both of us or one of us at the time. And there was no guarantee that I was, even if I actually held on to him, that he would have actually survived anyway. Was that a hard decision yes, to make? Yes, very hard decision to make. When you are holding on to somebody's loved one, where the actual partner is shouting at you, relying on you to keep him alive, and you have to save yourself is not an easy thing to do. Would you jump in again? I would, but approaching it differently. I would assess it first, give myself at least a 10 second, 20 second, just to look around, get myself prepared. Perhaps if you took the 10 or 20 seconds, you might not then be able to jump in. Because the jumping in is... Is a split-second decision, yes. What do you think it would have been like if you hadn't jumped in? I would have probably lived with regret and ashamed of myself. I actually stood by and did nothing. I'd rather say I tried and failed rather than did nothing. Have you seen the memorial in Postman's Park? Yes. That could have been you. Is that a strange thought? Yes, uh, it is a strange thought, and quite frankly, I'd rather it not be me. I'd rather it not be me, as um, I wouldn't want to actually be have my name up around that wall, wall anytime soon, quite frankly. But, uh, Sarah Smith, pantomime artiste at Prince's Theatre died of terrible injuries received when attempting in her inflammable dress to extinguish the flames which had enveloped her companion, January the 24th, 1863. The earliest plaques in Postman's Park are now over a century old. The wooden bench is beginning to rot, the drain pipes rusting, and the tiny wooden statue of George Frederick Watts fell off a few years ago and had to be stuck back on. Money's needed to make repairs. Until it arrives, those who love the memorial do what they can. One of those looking after it is historian John Price. From the very first moment I saw it, I just felt a connection with it. And it's been there ever since, really. Love at first sight. I guess it was, yeah. <laughs> I guess in some ways. I don't know what it was. it was. It was a strange thing. I know every nook and cranny and every tile and every person and every detail and 
a few years ago we actually came down here with mops and buckets and washed the whole thing from top to bottom and there was I don't know that hands-on approach of actually mopping the tiles and watching the years of grabiness sort of come off them an odd experience but it was more than just cleaning a wall I can understand how people who restore things must feel when they bring something back to life so. It is an act of love, isn't it, and cleaning something? Clean a body before you bury it, don't they? In the Victorian period, it was always done by the family. We would think that quite odd now, to wash down the bodies of our loved ones before they were buried. And we just want it wrapped up in a thing and given to an undertaker and then given back to us, ready to go, sort of thing, like an oven-wrapped turkey. You were washing down the body? Yeah, I, yeah, maybe, yes. Maybe there was a sense of that, sort of cleansing. And, of course, what happened was we were all here with step ladders and buckets and mops and people would come over to you and go why are you cleaning this memorial have you got something to do with it and then you'd learn their relationship with it they'd say oh yeah I come here once a week to walk my dog or whatever and oh I'm always amazed can you tell me something about it? and they take they take you by the hand and lead you to a tablet and say can you explain that to me because I don't understand it I've never understood what a such and such is and you'd say you know what I can tell you you know you come to the right person <laughs> you're the keeper of its stories yeah maybe that would be quite nice I would I would like that yeah I could live with that <laughs> Perhaps we all turn into stories when we die, told and retold by the people who loved us. But I hope when our stories are long forgotten, these plaques will still be here, surprising passers-by. Their tiny elegies encapsulate whole lives in a single moment, a split second of brave, foolhardy, instinctive compassion for another person. How very human. Lee Pitt. Reprographic operator, age 30, saved a drowning boy from the canal at Thamesmead, but sadly was unable to save himself. June 7th, 2007.